Welcome to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Epstein. In this episode, I talk with Anne Sheehan, a former director of corporate governance at the California State Teachers Retirement System, better known as CalSTRS, and currently serving as a director of Victoria's Secret and Company and Con Robbins Holdings Corp, a SPAC. She's also a senior advisor at PJT Camberview. Anne served as the chair of the Securities and Exchange Commission's Investor Advisor Committee from 2012 to 2020. She's also a founder of the Investor Stewardship Group and serves on the advisory board of the Weinberg Center for Corporate Governance at the University of Delaware. In this podcast, we talk about the evolution of sustainability and ESG, the current criticisms to this model, the new SEC climate disclosure regime, the rise of shareholder engagements, particularly by institutional investors, board diversity, the rise of private markets, and how directors should handle board matters during a downturn or recession. If you like this show, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. You can find all the show notes on the website boardroom-governance.com, and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com. And it is so good to have you in the Boardroom Governance Podcast. We met not long ago. You spoke at one of our programs at UC Hastings in Sacramento. So it was great to see you in person. And you are one of the leading experts in governance. We've known each other for a long time. So it's great to talk about governance and just generally catch up. Sounds great. Nice to be here. I enjoyed your event in Sacramento last week. The ability to opportunity to talk about diversity on corporate boards and how that movement got started. And I know we'll touch on that topic a little bit later on in our discussion. Yeah, diversity on boards is a hot, hot topic. Uh, There's been a couple of court decisions that have struck down uh, California laws. We'll talk about that. But before we go into these hot topics in governance, I always like to talk about our guest's general background, uh, your origin story, uh, why don't you tell us where you're born, where you grew up, and then we'll go from there to to today, if we can. Sure. So I'll give you a little bit of my background. So I was raised in Colorado, went to school there, and then soon after graduating, I did spend a year skiing before I decided to get into the <laughs> professional world. Sometimes I wish I'd go back to a year of skiing. <laughs> now I guess I have the opportunity to do that. But then moved to Washington, D.C., So Mm -hmm. one of my degrees was in political science, public policy. So worked on the Hill and then worked um, uh, in President Reagan's administration uh, as the deputy assistant secretary of energy. So some of the issues that fast forward that we're dealing with in the ESG Mm. world, I actually worked on way back when from a public policy perspective. I've always thought that my policy background served me well for the corporate governance world. Mm because there's definitely an intersection of some regulatory issues and legislative issues like we talked about. And then came to Sacramento in the late 80s, worked in and out of state government there, culminating in uh, probably the job that got me into the corporate governance field. I was the chief deputy director at the Department of Finance for the state of California. And in that role, I sat on the boards representing the administration, the governor, at that time it was Governor Schwarzenegger, on the financing authorities in the treasurer's office, but then also sat on the CalSTRS retirement board. And you don't want to know how many boards I sat on. (laughs) I would be considered a very overboarded (laughs) corporate governance arena today, but close to a hundred and some boards that the administration was represented on all the conservancies, the financing authorities. Wait, wait, wait. So you sat on a hundred boards and that time. They are represented on a hundred boards. I probably actively did about 20. Some of them meet, four times a year. Some of them meet monthly. I chaired mm-hmm. some. It just all depended on what the issue was. But they're legacy boards that go way back in state government on financing issues, primarily on financing issues, but then also on conservancy issues, the Lands Commission, some other substantive boards oversaw a board that did all the approval of school construction bonds for the state of California. So it was a really wide selection, but it gave me a firsthand view of governance Mm-hmm. And it was through that role that I sat on the CalSTRS board and really developed an interest in the whole corporate governance field, the governance of the board, how we were overseeing the assets of the board for the state teachers, while our investment office was running. 
At that time, Stanford, which I know you had long been affiliated with, mm-hmm. came out with what was called the first Clapman Report on mm-hmm. board governance. And I was intrigued by that. So from a board member looked at, had asked how CalSTRS stands up on board governance. Are we also practicing the best governance? And through that position, did a lot of work on um, political contribution disclosure of the board members because the treasurer, the controller, and the governor sat on the board. I represented the governor on the CalSTRS board. And so disclosure of businesses doing business with CalSTRS, making political contributions, and that we should disclose that. So early on, I was a big advocate of transparency and disclosure. So fast forward then, I went to work for CalSTRS as their first director of corporate governance in 2008. Mm -hmm. So interesting, Evan, I started my job on the Monday morning after Lehman Brothers went over a cliff (laughs) in September of 2008, Wow! um, sat and watched our portfolio go from, you know, 163 billion down to about 105 billion over the course of that six months, and then slowly climb back up. But it also gave me, if you think back in time as to where the country was at that point in time, I mean, the great financial crisis, when TARP was coming in, and they were trying to bail out the banks, Bear Stearns had gone under, Lehman, a number of others, and those that hadn't gone under were merged or purchased by another big bank. And it became evident that some of these failures were failures of governance Mm. by some of those board members. So it really gave me a firsthand view of the importance of governance as I went into the new role at CalSTRS. Got very involved with Dodd-Frank and the legislation that grew out of the financial crisis that gave shareholders some more rights than they had previous to that. Uh, We can talk about some of those, say, on pay. We did try and get proxy access from a statutory Mm -hmm. perspective, but it was struck down by the courts. But the good or bad, the pay ratio thing came out of there, the pay for performance regulations that we're now seeing out of the SEC, and a number of other issues that came out of Dodd-Frank. So it was an interesting time to start in the governance world Hmm. and sort of jumped in feet first and then spent 10 years in that role, retired, I think, as you know, in 2018, and then I'm currently sitting on a corporate board, Victoria's Secret, which is uh, after the spinoff of L Brands when they separated Mm -hmm. companies. I'm also sitting on a SPAC board, Cohen's Robbins Holding Company, and then doing some governance consulting for PJT Camberview. All right, great. Let me go back to one thing you said that that is really interesting and that is not broadly understood which are boards of public entities. That is by itself its own world. And has that changed much? You know, how much does politics get uh, involved in governance of these public entities? Because maybe in foreign countries, it's more common when you have state-owned enterprises. And so you suddenly have boards that that are populated by political nominees. And that puts a whole different spin to governance. And so we don't see much of those in corporations in the United States because the United States doesn't own so many state-owned enterprises, but you have lived the sort of California-owned and managed uh, state pension funds. How do you see the evolution of that governance? Well, certainly, I guess what I would say broadly is anytime there is a politician on a board, it's going to have a political bent to it. And I know one of the great, the um, frustration sometimes of the staffs of those entities is trying to not overly politicize the issues that are being done. Because these, remember, these boards were created to do a mission, a job. Um, through an, I also sat on the CalPERS board at the time. And so had the opportunity to sit on both boards and see how politics could influence the actions of those boards. There's a lot of money, obviously, in both of those pension funds. And you had people who had various motivations and issues that they wanted to pursue. Um, I did not sit on the board at the time that uh, they went after Safeway in their labor dispute. But I think that was an evidence of how a public board can become politicized. And I think when I went into my job at CalSTRS, we made it very, um, we worked very hard to make sure we that it didn't look like we were pursuing a political agenda. 
Mm-hmm. And I think we'll get into this question a little bit as we talk yeah. about ESG, because as we see now, many people view ESG issues that investors are engaging on because they do present a risk to the portfolio companies as political issues. Sure. So, and even when we were, I was at Calsters and we made decisions on divestment issues, mm. we did it in a very thoughtful, procedural, process-driven way. It was not just purely for political reasons that we decided to sell out of X, Y, or Z. Rather, we went through a process to see what the pros and cons, what the downside was, there was a reputational risk, are there other investments that we could find that would have the same risk-return ratio as that investment to substitute it out, how would we handle that? But to your point, these public boards always have an element of politics to them because they are populated by politicians, who many of whom have to get elected and are playing to their constituency group. So I think um, some of the civil service folks try and make sure that we can sort of depoliticize those, but there is an element of that in all of those on those public boards. Yeah, and it's fascinating. I mean, we'll we'll get to the broad ESG discussion very, very much alive today. Um, before we get there, you, you did mention that you're on a board of a SPAC company, and uh, that in the last two years, there's been a tremendous explosion of new SPACs. It seems that that market has dried out. What is your experience with SPACs? I mean, you, you are a corporate governance insider at some level, and, and so you have a very keen eye on how these vehicles operate. And for those of you who have been sleeping under a rock and don't know what a SPAC is, it's a special purpose acquisition company, which is an entity that is formed, goes public and acquires a private company. And then that company uh, through the merger becomes a public entity. It's an alternative way for a company to go public, Mm -hmm. as you say, Mm -hmm. as opposed to Mm -hmm. an IPO. Um, There has been a huge growth in SPACs. As I went on to this backboard, I know the um, sponsors and the other board members well and felt comfortable with my reputation as a corporate governance person to sit on this because I know how careful and deliberate they were in looking for a company that was a real company, had real revenues, was sustainable going forward. So I can only speak from my experience, but there was great amount of due diligence done on the potential target company that we have announced a merger with. I'm on Cohen's Robbins and it's been announced that Alwyn, which is a European lottery company, is the target and we should close over the next couple of months. But I felt very confident in the sponsors and doing their work to look at the target companies. There were a lot that we looked at that we didn't feel were going to be good companies post the spin and post the IPO and the listing. So we were very careful about it. But certainly we've been, the, the media is replete with stories about SPACs that went south. Sure. And I think for anyone who invests in a SPAC, you have to look to see, is there enduring revenue? Do they have a sound business model? Any kind of due diligence that you would do on any other type of investment. And I would add for those directors that want to be on a SPAC board, that the role of the independent director becomes a very important one because that's where conflicts may arise, where maybe some sponsors have the incentive of pushing a deal that may be good for the sponsors, but not necessarily for the public shareholders. So in case of litigation, being an independent director becomes a very important issue under Delaware law or the law from where it is incorporated. So I think it's a it's a very important and interesting area of governance as well as I think the number was that in 2021, there were 164 SPACs that raised, I don't know, $160 billion. Billions of dollars. And, and so it's a, it's a very big phenomena in terms of public listings. But let's talk a little bit about ESG. Calsters, and I remember uh, when you were at Calsters and we were at Stanford doing a lot of programs, was always a big champion of many of these issues that at the time wasn't called ESG, right? There were environmental issues, there were social issues, it was CSR, it was other uh, descriptions. But today, ESG has become a tremendous industry. So if we can call it industry, $35 trillion under ESG Uh, name, uh, which encompasses uh, many things. But how do you see the evolution, even among your tenure at Calsters from 2008 to 2018, and certainly in the last three or four years, where it really has become the mantra of governance everywhere? 
Yeah. Well, I'd even go back further than my tenure Mm -hmm. working for Kelsters because remember, I sat on the board from 2004 Mm -hmm. um, before I went to work for Kelsters. But the history of ESG issues at Kelsters goes way back. They had a statement of investor responsibility, which really would be a precursor to what we now call the ESG, dating back to 1979. Mm. So they have always looked at these issues. They developed what we called back then the 21 risk factors. And if you go on our website, on the website now for CalSTRS, they're now called the ESG factors. And these are issues that you have to take into consideration that are risk to the portfolio if they're not managed correctly. And so we always saw, whether it's called ESG or the risk factors, as investment risks or opportunities, depending on how they're handled by the company, that are integral to the investment decision of CalSTRS. And so as as a long-term universal owner, we felt what was imperative to engage on these issues going back to the early 2000s and then fast forward. As I mentioned before, um, we had a history of apartheid and the South African divestment, which was probably one of the first early movements of pension funds and other investment funds divesting of companies potentially that were doing business in South Africa. They're again sort of seen as a political issue, but it also could harm the reputation of the company and hurt shareholder value. And then we came into the development of the UN PRI, the Principles for Responsible Investing in the early 2000s, which laid out how investors need to get involved in some of these issues. And so those are the early early precursors to what we see now. I think one of the issues is all the terminology is thrown mm-hmm. around in terms of corporate social responsibility that can talk about philanthropy or their community work, um, as opposed to impact investing, which is you're trying to get a certain outcome for the investment. In the early years, the religious groups, the Interface Center on Corporate Responsibility was very active in what would be considered moral or ethical investing. You know, should you get involved in firearms? How do you handle labor issues, workforce issues, that type of thing? So it's really culminated in the last few years, as you say, with the growth of ESG investing. But at the end of the day, we always saw these issues at CalSTRS, and I think many investors now see this as real investment issues that can destroy the value of a company if they're not managed properly. Companies need to explain to investors how they're managing these issues, whether it's the transition to a lower carbon environment, whether it is work labor issues, supply chain issues. I mean, you look at the example of Nike when child labor making their shoes. Uh, So labor rights, supply chain issues, environmental issues, now we're coming into DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, human capital issues. So, how are companies addressing these issues? How they're handling them, and then being transparent to their investors about reporting on these issues. So, so you pointed to something that is very important, and sort of the history of ESG, and I would say the change in which institutional investors became active in governance. So there, there is a, a long history. And for example, in, in the mid 80s, the Council of Institutional Investors was, was formed in part because of CalPERS' uh, decision to have a voice in this green mailing where activists would get paid off and, and CalPERS didn't like what was going on. And, and the Council of Institutional Investors, which you were a member for many years, and that, is, that changed really the discussion of governance where uh, a lot of institutional investors became very active. And if we think about the last 30, 40 years, uh, corporations became 70%, 80% owned by institutional investors. So the voice of institutional investors became much more prominent. And you can trace those rights, more and more rights to shareholders. So you mentioned Dodd-Frank, where SanPay was given, where proxy access was given, where more inter- th- there was more relevance to independent directors and, and committees of boards, for example, from even Sarbanes-Oxley, arguably, was one of this big uh, legislation that gave this power. Uh, so, so that, I think, is a very interesting thing, maybe now culminating in this ESG moment and DEI moment as well, which is sort of a part of the ESG movement. One thing that I, I want you to comment on is the level of engagements that Calsters uh, has done 
you know, from your days to now, it seems like the engagements have increased. There is also some type of active engagement where they've paired or partnered with shareholder activists. You know, engine number one was that the case of ExxonMobil was was very prominent a year ago, I guess, last year. So can you comment on the shareholder engagement from institutional investors, maybe from Kaltzer's perspective, and how this changed the discourse between investors and directors and companies? Yeah. Um, yeah, happy to talk about that. Let me talk. Let me touch a little bit on when you said the Council of Institutional Investors, because you're right. The council was started as a result of CalPERS, CalSTRS, Wisconsin State Investment Board, Connecticut, some of the big pension funds. And it really was around the G of ESG mm-hmm. governance. I've always thought that the acronym should be GES, governance, Correct. environment, and yeah, social, yeah. because governance is really the infrastructure that sets in place how boards, companies should handle these issues. Um, And that was one of the leading reasons for the creation of the council to sort of pool the investment and the the influence of these to talk to companies about their governance and what they should be doing. So fast forward, engagement, oh my gosh, just the time that I was at CalSTRS to the time today in terms of engagement. Companies did not, their IR departments would talk to the analysts on their quarterly earnings calls and the CEO would be on those. Rarely did you have boards involved. Um, occasionally maybe a board member would be on the calls or to listen, but it was traditionally the IR professionals who would do the discussions with the shareholders. Well, with the rise in corporate governance, again, I think after the financial crisis, this was the owners of the companies. At that time, I was at CalSTRS. What the heck happened? Where were these boards of directors? These are the people we elect, hopefully annually, to represent our interest And so we felt an obligation to talk to these people. Now, engagement can take many forms. It can be a shareholder proposal. It can just be sending a letter saying, we'd like to talk to you about you choose the issue. It can be voting proxies if you don't get their attention. And I think one of the issues with Exxon, um, Exxon for a long time did not really respond to their shareholders when they asked for engagement or filed proposals. And so I think that was a culmination in a great deal of frustration on many, on the part of many shareholders that felt Exxon was not being responsive to their shareholders. And it resulted in that vote and three new board members coming on. In the, in the investor community, Exxon was famous for just ignoring the letters that were coming mm-hmm. in. So I think that is a lesson that many companies do not want to find themselves in. When people ask about, well, what should we do? It's like the first thing, answer the letter if your investor writes to you and do that. But Evan, what I would go back and one thing I would say is the advent of say on pay forced the Mm -hmm. discussion between investors and companies because of the vote on say on pay and executive compensation. And so that broadly opened the door to more engagement by investors. And then they went into other issues, the makeup of the board, how are you selecting your board members? You know, how are you overseeing management? I mean, whatever the issue is, how are you handling various things? But I think say on pay, definitely because of the annual vote of the pay of the companies, they want to hear from their investors and the investors want to talk to them about some of the concerns that they have. So over the last couple of years, you've seen even more and you've seen the growth of so many um, firms. Um, the one I work f- that I do some work for in terms of really leading with investor interests as we can counsel companies in terms of responding to shareholder interest and looking at that perspective. Yeah, uh, th- that is clearly uh, a huge turning point. Uh, say and pay for those that uh, don't know is a non-binding vote by shareholders on the compensation of CEOs and leading executives at companies. And that uh, uh, existed outside of the United States, but in the US, the pressure was uh, in, in Dodd-Frank, they, they put it in. And, and ever since there's been more engagement which takes us to the broader ESG issue. So we uh, started off by saying that the corporations have been politicized. Uh, I would say in the last month or two, it has been taken by a lot of the tech titans as a topic of importance. So people like Peter Thiel called it uh, ESG is a hate factory for naming enemies. Elon Musk a few days ago says that ESG is a scam 
we see a former Vice President Mike Pence that calls it a radical ESG agenda. Uh, and I can go on and on, corporate cancel culture and other stuff. So it's taken a political battle at some level uh, that we hadn't seen. For many years, ESG was the common denominator for major investors. And I would say Larry Fink at BlackRock really took this flag. And since tw 20, 2012, he's been writing these letters to CEOs and he's been pushing a little bit this idea that you know companies have to have a purpose and social responsibility is really important. Uh, but nowadays, we are in this very politicized environment. ESG now has a counter narrative. And how do you think that plays out? Because uh, it's sort of become a, a very hot topic in governance. And I think you are in such a, you've got such good knowledge of the history that you can talk to us about this politicization of governance and now ESG too. Yeah. So I guess a couple of things I'd say on that. As I look at ESG issues, I come back to the point I made before. These are investment issues that if a company does not handle it well, it can hurt the performance of the company. And as a shareholder in the role I used to sit in, can hurt the performance of our portfolio as at the time was looking to pay the pension of the teachers of the state of California. So it was an issue of investment risks if they were not handled correctly. But I can certainly, so what I would say is I can certainly understand where some people could not completely understand that these really are investment issues. We're talking about a transition to a lower carbon environment. Well, they may disagree as to, you know, climate change or not, but the world is moving towards that. And so how are companies managing that transition? If you are a company that uses a lot of water in your production, your manufacturing, there's no doubt there's a water we're developing a water shortage and it can be a precious resource. So how are you maximizing the use of those to conserve the water better, looking at alternatives? Those to me are issues and actions that the company can perform to handle that risk and to help the performance of the company if they manage it. And a potential opportunity, you know, maybe you're a big user of electricity and you decide to put in solar panels to reduce your electrical cost and you don't you're not as dependent on the grid so that, but, that man, let me give you an example there because th this i think of the trade-off is really interesting tesla what prompted elon musk to call esg is a scam is that it got excluded from the index of esg tesla a solar powered and mm -hmm. electric vehicle and exxon mobile got you know elected as an oil company so you know tesla. that is interesting okay so let me read Elon was looking at as to what's the impact they're making electric cars, which is a good product and can help us in the transition. But if you look at the S&P, the criteria for being in the ESG index, it's how do you handle your workforce? What is right. the governance of the company? He has all, it mm -hmm. used to be he had all his friends and his brother in the boardroom making the decisions about his compensation. So he is looking at it through the lens of impact investing. Of the and E. And, and the other one is the S. Right. He's only looking at the E. What's the impact of my cars on society and on the environment? Absolutely. He's done a great job in that regard. But he discounts the S and the G factors that S&P 500 goes into making the determination of doing that. You know, do you what is the governance? Do you give the your shareholders the rights that they need in case the company is not? Or like in the case of Elon, does he have all the voting rights? So he doesn't care about the governance of the company. So I think it is a you're conflating. He's conflating the issues of what is ESG, how do investors see it, and what he's seeing as what should be impact. You know, what's the impact of his company, the sustainability? Absolutely, what he's doing on electric vehicles is great for the economy. The product he's making, he's great. But investors look at the broad range of ESG issues and not solely the issue of what the product is. Because a lot of it is, all right, you're making a great product and you're providing a good shareholder return. How are you getting that shareholder return? That's mm -hmm. what you go back sort of upstream and look to see, okay, are you doing it on the backs of slave labor or child labor is in the case right. of Nike, they went through that. Okay, you may be making a good return, but it's not sustainable in the long run to do that. Right. So, and as a long-term investor, 
an, an index investor that you're not selling out of the index, you have to engage with the companies on those. So that takes us to another point, which is the new SEC disclosure regime, uh, which has been very contested too. I think it was the most commented uh, SEC proposal. It's still not final. And a lot of people have... The climate change one? Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, obviously, we we don't have the final rule, but I suppose it does put an emphasis on the E and, and sort of climate change and I suppose Gary Gensler, the uh, the chairman of the SEC, has made a very important point on pushing this on, on his agenda. But uh, what what do you think from a governance perspective on this new rule and how the companies are going to take this into their plans? Yeah. So a couple of things. Investors are asking for disclosure right now on climate change. What companies are doing to transition to a lower carbon how are, environment, how are they addressing climate change? Investors are asking for scope one and scope two emission information now. So the market under the world of private ordering, companies are disclosing that. The larger companies are beginning to disclose it. Some have disclosed scope three if they feel it is material to their operations, such as an oil and gas company beginning to go in that direction. Plus some of the greenhouse gas emissions are already required under EPA rules. So the companies that are governed by those and have certain amount of emissions have to disclose those under other regulatory requirements now. Um, It's not just an E proposal though, remember Evan, it's also a G proposal because Mm -hmm. they ask for them to talk about how the board oversees and governance, the preparing of this information, the reporting of the information, eventually under the proposal, the attestation or the assurance of the information that is being reported. So it is definitely an E and a G proposal. What I would say is it's probably one of the boldest, most progressive proposals that has come out probably ever of the SEC. I think Mm -hmm. Gary was being responsive to many investors who want this information. But as you've said, he's had to, he's been forced to extend the comment period because of the interest. It's a 507-page proposal. Um, They had to do a very extensive cost-benefit analysis. But I guess from looking at it and watching the marketplace respond, there are going to be a lot of comments on this about, is this the way to go? Should they phase it in more? Their legal authority to do this. There are many who are questioning, is this within the legal authority of the SEC. The SEC is a disclosure regime. Give us the information. But is this overreach in terms of the disclosure, the cost-benefit analysis of this? Um, Are the companies, some of the companies, such as on scope three, would be reluctant to do anything on scope three now because potential liability issues related to that. So I do think the marketplace is asking for climate change disclosure, whether the end rule will result in what has been proposed. I think there's going to be a lot of pushback on that. I think the biggest issue for the SEC to consider is whether the authority to issue this rule will withstand the scrutiny of a court. Yeah. Yeah. And and for sure, there's it's going to be uh, litigation following this. Talking about litigation, let's talk about board diversity. So in 2018, California passed SB 826, which mandated uh, more gender equality on the boardroom. And in 2020, uh, it was mandating minorities into the boardroom. And so both these laws were challenged uh, recently in the last month or so, was struck down by a judge in LA. But we did see a lot of progress on diversity in the last two years in California and beyond. And one of the things that we have seen is that it's not only from the state of California. This idea of board diversity has been pushed for a long time from institutional investors, from stock exchanges, uh, from regulators, and it's not a new movement. But what do you make out of these laws that were struck down? And what where, what do you make out of board diversity these days, maybe as compared to when you were in cultures where I remember you were already pushing lists of women for uh, companies to elect from? So this is not a new topic, but it, and it's certainly not the end of diversity in this respect. So this is an issue that, to quote the old Virginia Slim's cigarette commercial, we've come a long way, baby, because when (laughs) we started in 2008 and 2009, as you know, at CalSTRS, Mm -hmm. diversity on corporate boards was an early issue for us. 
CalSTRS as the state teachers pension fund is 70% women. I mean, the issue resonated, but also half the population are women. They're out in the business world, they're in the judicial branch, they're in the legislative branch. And yet, as you looked at the corporate boardrooms of not just Fortune 500 companies or S&P 500, but Russell 3000, the smaller companies, there was an, they were not taking advantage of the skills and the expertise of these individuals inside the boardrooms to make decisions on behalf of shareholders. Most women are the you know, pocketbook, the check writers for many families. So they make the decisions. It's good business to have that viewpoint inside the boardroom. And we at CalSTRS felt it was very important to ask, why don't you have more diversity in there? So we were active, as you say, in creating the diverse director database, with which Equilar now has. We were active in the 30% coalition, the 30% club that asked for more representation. So there's been tremendous progress. You're right. The legislation was passed. Even when the governor signed the legislation, he wondered if it was legal and speculated that it could be struck down. But it did make a point in terms of we were not making progress as much progress in the marketplace. What I would say is over the last couple of years, probably coterminous with the signing of the legislation, the big institutional investors, the Black Rocks, the Vanguards, and the State Street, you know, the three large index providers who own probably 20% or 25% mm-hmm. of most companies, have come out with their own voting guidelines about what their expectations are on diversity on boards, that they won't vote for a nominating and governance committee unless there's one, two, or three females on the board, or at least one member of a diverse community on the board. So the market, private ordering again, the marketplace is working because the com- you don't want to be the director or the chair of the nominating committee who gets voted against or you get voted off the island because you did not put more diversity inside your boardroom. The case, the business case for this has been made numerous times. If your customers are women, doesn't it make sense to have women sitting around the boardroom making the decisions? If you are large and say, you know, an overseas market in Asia or South America, doesn't certainly it- in, in, in Victoria's Secret, for example. Yes, Victoria's Secret, which <laughs> our primary customers are women. There we have seven board members, six of them are women. Mm-hmm. So you have people who understand what the customer is saying sitting around the boardroom making those decisions. I don't know what company doesn't want to have the insight of the customers inside the boardroom making the strategic decisions, the capital allocation decisions. So over the past couple of years, we've seen a huge movement towards more diversity inside the boardroom. And now we're going beyond just gender diversity to ethnic diversity, you know, LGBT, underrepresented communities. That was the other legislation that passed, unfortunately Mm -hmm. was struck down. But I think the idea is sticking with us. The idea of disclosure of who's on your board, what NASDAQ has done in terms of requiring, saying that if you're going to list on the NASDAQ, you have to have X amount of women on the board or disclose why you don't have them on the board. You know, tell us why you couldn't Mm -hmm. find out of all the capable women out there in the world, you couldn't find somebody to serve on the board. You don't have to. It's a comply or explain rule. You don't have to have that, but you are going to have to explain with to your investors why you couldn't find someone. Well, obviously the case is going to be they're going to put someone on that board. They've also required the disclosure in the matrix about the makeup of the board. That's one thing that investors are always looking for. You know, who sits in the boardroom? What's the diversity of those individuals, not just the gender, but the ethnicity, the breakdown? And it can be self-identified if someone wants to say I'm Latina or I'm, you know, African American or you know, Native American, whatever it is, so that they can identify what those are. It makes for better decision-making. The other movement that you're seeing now is this discussion on diversity, diversity, equity, and inclusion is going beyond the boardroom. It's going inside the companies Mm -hmm. themselves. You see the racial equity audits, the pay, gender pay gap proposals being introduced. So shareholders are looking to see, okay, if your customers are primarily female, Who do you have in the C-suite or below making those decisions? Are they being treated as equally as others are? If you're big in a Latin American market, do you have someone inside the C-suite or in your business who understands that? So shareholders, this has become a very important issue to shareholders, not just from an equity issue, but from a business perspective. That's what's driving the push for that. 
Yeah, no, certainly it's become a, a huge thing. And uh, one thing that uh, these laws in California were targeting were public companies and a parallel rise, not only in Silicon Valley, but in the US has been the rise of private markets. And so uh, for many years in Silicon Valley, people would give this advice that, you know, stay private for longer because you can raise a lot of capital as a private company and not have to go public. And that was conventional wisdom. And the last two years became interesting because there were so many IPOs, right? Last year, there was, I think, a thousand companies mm-hmm. went public. So it wasn't true that companies only wanted to stay private. But we have seen an explosion of these so-called unicorn companies and and the number of investment in private markets, uh, you know, are even larger than public markets. And so that has also impacted on governance because a lot of what we've been talking about are best practices that have evolved for public corporations. So Culsters has for a long time engaged these companies. But in the private markets, it's a different ballgame, in part because the board composition is so different. You have much less independent directors. You have maybe in a, a you know one or two founders, one or two or three investors. And so it is a very different ballgame. And we've seen some excesses you know, of companies like Theranos, of companies like Uber at, at, at a certain stage. We work certainly when they were going to go public, there was all these governance uh, excesses. What do you make out of private company governance? And what are the distinctions that you think or changes that should happen to uh, make this better? Well, I think, as you said, the private companies and some of the Silicon Valley, the venture funded companies, and even some of the private equity companies, they sort of have a set formula for who sits on the boards. But the opportunity to put some independent, you know, the founders, usually the investors, the big funders, and then hopefully some independent directors also, which can give them an opportunity to provide some diversity. But as these companies start out and grow up, mature, in my words, into one that may want to go public, there are going to be expectations on these companies about what the governance expectations are by shareholders as they spin off into the public markets. As you recall, when I was at Sturz, we were an investor in Facebook before it went Hmm. public because Mm -hmm. CalSTRS, as many of the pension funds, is a large private equity venture capital um, investments also. So you're an owner as an LP in some of these funds and some of the, you track some of the companies, but when they went public, we wrote to them because they had no women on the board at that. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. They eventually put Sheryl Sandberg and a few others on there, but it was your users are over 50% female. Why aren't, why don't you have this representation? We were able to do that because we were an investor in the fund, one of a couple of the venture capital funds that owned Facebook, that were primary investors in Facebook at the time. So I think many investors are using their rights as LPs also to raise these issues, not just on diversity, but on governance, mm-hmm. on ESG, because the private equity firms, the venture capital firms are recognizing that even though we're in the private markets, there are these expectations. Now, with the growth in the private markets, there's a lot of capital out there. Companies don't, they used to traditionally go public because they needed capital. Mm -hmm. And that was the way. But with changes now in the capital markets, they don't need to go public to get capital. There's a lot of capital out there flowing in the world. And sometimes that capital doesn't come with the strings attached that public Mm -hmm. capital can come with as you go out into the public markets. Well, that's really interesting because... For two years, we've had an incredible explosion in capital markets. Mm-hmm. Every single metric, number of PE investments, number of venture capital investments, number of IPOs, number of M&A transactions, SPACs, you name it. It was capital flowing everywhere, in part because there were macroeconomic incentives, low interest rates, you know, a lot of government infusion of capital. But now, we are turning into this downturn. And a lot of people are calling it maybe a recession. And so there's going to be a lot of retraction of capital. We may see many down rounds in private companies. Uh, We've seen already the tech companies and public markets have gone down anywhere from 50% to 80%. These were the big champions of the pandemic. And so we are in a new world in in a sense of governance. And this is 
actually interesting because that's when governance really matters. What are your thoughts or recommendations to directors in this environment, maybe both for public companies and and maybe uh, private companies? I mean, I suppose the private companies are more in a world of pain than public companies just because investors at that stage have different rights and liquidation preferences, and that dial is going to turn in a different way. Well, it harkens to me. It harkens back to the old what Warren Buffett quote that you know when the tide mm-hmm. is going out, everybody. But you can yeah. really see who's, you know, who's swimming naked when the tide rolls back in. Mm-hmm. And I think that is an adage that is very appropriate for today in terms of say governance or some of their other decisions, the leverage amounts. That's what we saw in two thousand eight. Nobody, they always thought, okay, we can take out the leverage that we had, and all of a sudden, when it all, when the bills all come due you know, you realize how overextended they were. So I guess my, um, it's easy to be a director when times are good and all boats are rising and there's, right. you know, capital and the capital is flowing in and the revenue is doing well. But I think the challenge is making sure as we as we evidence through the pandemic, because we were sort of forced to look at these issues very quickly during the pandemic. And I think it was a good Um, It was a good example and a good analogy as to how do we govern as board members during the downtime. There was a race to preserve capital. Um, As you recall, many people thought the ESG issues would go by the wayside. And it actually just sort of increased the volume on the ESG issues. What are you doing about your workforce? How are you making sure your people are taken care of? You know, these issues, executive compensation, those types of things. So I think the pandemic was a bit of a precursor to now what could be a downturn. We came out, the markets went back up. Uh, as you remember, March of 2020, the markets were in free fall, and then mm-hmm. they stabilized and are now starting to come back up. But as we go into this slowdown, um, during the, the governance processes and procedures are there to be the guardrails during the uptime and the downturns. And that's what the directors need to think about. You know, Keep doing the business of the business and making sure that you're not ma- you're making decisions in the best interest of your shareholders during that period of time. Yeah, no, it, it's going to be really interesting. All right, well, uh, we've covered a lot of ground on governance matters. Let's switch into the rapid fire questions. So, what are the one, two, three books that have greatly influenced your life? Well, let's see. A couple. I read a lot, so there's so many that are fresh in my mind that I've recently done. Um, read the biography of President Grant by Ron Chernow. Hmm. Um, Grant was a, you know, I think a misunderstood president and actually a much better leader than people gave him credit for. The only thing people know about President Grant was sort of the controversies and the scandals around him. But he actually was a great leader and a good ex-president as he traveled around the world representing the U.S. Um, Another book I recently was Strength to Strength by Arthur Brooks, who used to be head of the American Enterprise Institute and talking about individuals like myself who are transitioning to the second phase of their life and how they can make that transition from being maybe successful in a first phase into how they can use the, you go from a knowledge base to wisdom. Mm-hmm. All that knowledge we use, Mal, maybe makes you a wise old elder in terms of uh, helping others. Sounds very governance uh, relevant, right? It is. Board, board relevant. It, um, it's a great book, and I'm a big admirer. I've always been a big admirer of Arthur Brooks in terms of that. Um, another one, another Brooks, David Brooks, unrelated, his road to character that he did a couple years ago that highlighted certain people in history and building strong character. Again, a very good governance issue. Um, so those are books that have sort of influenced me over the of the past few years. All right. That's great. Great recommendations. Uh, and who are your mentors and what did you learn from them? You know, one of the, I would say one of my mentors, he probably doesn't know, is our old friend, Rich Kopis, who used to be the general. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Especially a mentor in the governance world, because as you say, he was one of the founders of uh, CII when he was general counsel of CalPERS. And in what really holding companies responsible and the issue we touched on about making sure people don't think this is a political agenda, because when you're in a fishbowl like a CalSTRS or CalPERS, you have to make sure people understand that this is an investment agenda. Um, other people that a friend of mine who's passed away, he used to be head of the business roundtable here in California, great mentor in terms of looking at issues over the long game. You know, it's not just this fight of today or what's going on, but what's the long-term impact you can have on making your workplace a better place, 
whatever the policy you're involved in, that type of thing. Who was that? Uh, Bill Houck, who okay. uh, used to run the Business Roundtable. Okay. That's great. Are there any quotes you think of often or live your life by? Oh, gosh. It's so funny when, um, you know, a lot of them in terms of play the hand that's dealt you in your personal life. Mm -hmm. You know, you may think life is going to go like this, but it may go like that. And so don't get, you know, don't obsess over the bitter. Go forward. Um, a couple other favorite ones I have is perfect is the enemy of good. 80% is better than 100% if you can get it if, or zero um, in terms of that. Um, the only constant in life is change. So we have to adjust to what's going on in the world today. And I think what's going on in the shareholder world is a perfect example of that, the change that is going on and how companies are responding to some of these issues. So I've got a okay. few of those that I live by. Yeah, those are those are really good. Um, and what is an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? You know, this was this is an interesting one. Okay, so one of the things I love to do when I travel to a new city mm -hmm. is, you know, those sort of um, those hop on hop off buses that you have in every city that like is a tourist trap. But uh -huh. I will say it's an interesting way to get to know a city before you decide what you want to go see in the city. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I typically go for a run. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I suppose yeah. I suppose that 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 is an interesting thing. Finally, which living person do you most admire? You know, this is a hard one. I'll tell you the people because they've been in the news recently is the I would say the people of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Um it's a real time you know, Zelensky and those people there in that country, they right now, I truly admire in terms of what they've done for their country and the yeah. world, you know, they're telling the world freedom is worth fighting for and they want to be masters of their own destiny. Mm -hmm. Yes, no, for sure. It is, it is uh, incredible to watch and so hard to understand how it went the way it is going now like we, we thought that was from the past right like and and it is very very hard to to watch now and thank you so much for doing this with me uh, you know i've admired and followed you on the governance scene for such a long time and your words uh, have wisdom and you've learned uh, to navigate a lot of these matters so i'm sure a lot of the listeners will appreciate your, your thoughts on governance. And it was great seeing you uh, last week too. So hopefully we'll, we'll stay in touch. But thank you very much again for doing this. Thanks, Evan. I really appreciate it. Good All right. discussion. Thank you for tuning in to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can just find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan Epstein. You can also check out all the details related to this podcast on the website boardroom-governance.com and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com.